Would you bow with me once more as we enter God's word? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful picture we've just seen of what you have, what you have and are preparing for your children. And we thank you, Lord, that this future glory is something that we can set our minds upon even this morning and lay hold of by faith. And so I pray, Father, as we open uh, your word, revealing this glimpse to us, we pray, Father, that you would bless it. Speak through me, your servant, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've entered Romans uh, chapter 8, our second part in Romans chapter 8. And today is part 17 of our series entitled Present Suffering Versus Future Glory. In the 1976 Olympics in Montreal, a Japanese gymnast named Shun Fujimoto was competing in the team competition. Somehow, during the floor exercises, he badly injured his right knee. It was obvious to all that he would be forced to withdraw. However, they had not taken into account Fujimoto's incredible determination and resolve to win a gold medal for his team. For coming up next was his strongest event, the rings. In them, he had a nearly flawless routine. But the critical point lay ahead. For the rings, of course, didn't involve his legs, only his arms. However, the dismount, landing some eight feet from eight feet height, he would have to come down on this knee. And so, without hesitation, coming to the end of his routine, Fujimoto ended his routine, launching high into the air in a twisting triple somersault. And as he did, the crowd held its breath. Coming down with a tremendous impact, he landed on his heavily damaged right knee. It visibly buckled, but somehow he incredibly fought through the pain and held the landing. The crowd jumped to its feet and bathed Fujimoto in thunderous applause, and the judges proceeded to reward him with the highest personal score of his career. Furthermore, that single routine became the margin of victory for Team Japan. It gave them the gold medal by a mere four-tenths of a point over the team from the Soviet Union. However, it came at a high cost for Fujimoto. The jarring impact of the landing aggravated his already seriously injured knee. It dislocated his broken kneecap and tore ligaments all the way up and down his leg. One doctor who later worked on his leg on the operation stated, How he managed to do somersaults and twists and land without collapsing in screams of agony is beyond my comprehension. Later reporters asked him about that very moment, and this was his reply. The pain shot through me like a knife. It brought tears to my eyes. But now I have a gold medal around my neck, and the pain is gone. Now, in this way, Shun Fujimoto's suffering overcame, pardon me, his suffering was overcome by the glory. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul writes just the same. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now that's Paul's thesis statement for this passage of of scripture that we're going to be studying this morning. I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
Shun Fujimoto didn't even think the pain that he experienced, as excruciating as it was, was worth comparing with the glory of winning that gold medal. How much more for the Christian? Now, I've previously told you that our salvation comes in three phases. There's the past, present, and future phases of our salvation. And they go like this. The past is, I have been justified. So justified is the past completed event where we have been declared not guilty. We have been declared perfectly righteous to enter the presence of God because we are hidden in Christ. So we have been justified. Then there's the present tense. I am being sanctified. This is the ongoing process where where God is sanctifying us by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, making us more and more into the image of Christ. And this goes on for as long as as we walk this earth. We are being sanctified. But then there's the future tense, and that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. I will be glorified. So I have been justified, I am being sanctified, and I will be glorified. And so in today's passage, we will see Paul contrasting the present suffering that we go through in our period of sanctification versus the future glory yet to be revealed. Further, Paul will proceed to explain why he so confidently believes that all of the suffering that we can ever endure in this life is like a drop in the bucket compared to a vast, deep ocean of glory that's yet to come. Now, the Apostle Paul knew a thing or two about suffering for Christ. Some have said that Paul had a PhD in suffering. There's a lengthy passage where he lists all of the physical ways that he suffered for the Lord. More floggings than we could even comprehend. He was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned countless times. And then on top of that was all of the spiritual pressure he felt and his concern for all of the churches. And so Paul suffered for Christ uh, as much, if not more, than any other man who has ever lived. And so when he states in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with what's to come, he knew what he was talking about. He wasn't some ivory tower academic who had never suffered a day in his life. No, he was in the trenches of suffering. And so when he says this, we, who perhaps suffer in some limited way in comparison to Paul, we should sit up and pay attention to when someone like him talks about something like this. And so in today's text, Paul will proceed now to give us Three examples of why our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with our future glory. Each of these three examples is linked to the word groan. Who here is a dad? (laughs) Who here has ever told dad jokes, also known as groaners, right? So I'm a dad, full disclaimer. I love telling groaners. I'm not going to tell you any right now. But Paul uses the word groan three times to set apart three uh, specific phases of to compare how our present sufferings, our present groanings, are not worth comparing with the glory yet to come. So here we go with the three groans. First, we see that creation groans. Second, we people groan. And third, the spirit groans. So first, Creation groans. If you have your Bibles, please open them up again to Romans 8, and there I'll read verses 19 to 22, beginning in verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. 
For their creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now here Paul is saying that something has gone wrong with creation. Creation is groaning, Paul says. Something is wrong with it. As beautiful as creation is, we look at a beautiful sunset, we look at the majestic mountains, we, we see creations, you know, sing with, with spring's arrival, and we say, you know, creation is beautiful. And yet, in spite of its beauty, there's still something wrong with creation. In fact, something's gone wrong with it. So what is it? Well, when God first created the world, we go back to Genesis. And we look at the account given there, and we see that the Lord created the world and everything in it perfect, without spot, without blemish. And when he looked at his creation, each day of creation, he looked, he looked at what he had made, and he said, it is good. And then on the sixth day of creation, after he had made all of the wildlife and all of the animal kingdom, and finally the pinnacle, he made man. And he looked, he looked at it, and he said, it is very good. And in this very good world that he had created, there was no suffering, no death. The animal kingdom lived in perfect harmony with one another. There was no food chain. There was no pecking order of bigger animals eating smaller animals. There were no natural disasters like earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, or droughts. Further, there were no diseases. There were no viruses. There were no cancers. Creation in every single way was just as John Milton's epic poem so famously described it, a paradise lost, a paradise lost. God had created a perfect paradise, but now it was lost. So what happened? Whose fault was it that this paradise was lost? Well, Genesis 3.17 tells us that it was mankind who was responsible. It was man's fault for this paradise being lost. For following their rebel rebellion in the garden, God said to Adam, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. Cursed is the ground because of you. The ground is speaking about the entire earth. The earth, the ground, is cursed. And, and now there's thistles and thorns and all sorts of problems. Now, how many of you knew that before sin entered the world, there were no thorns or thistles that you had to weed from your garden? How many of you knew that? Right? How many of you, as you're weeding your garden, haven't thought back on that, that very fact and thought, man, you guys, why couldn't you just get it right? You know, toiling, you're sweating, the, the thorns have just pierced through your glove. Don't you love it when that happens? You, got, you know, you think you got a good glove on and all of a sudden it just like goes right through a weak spot and it like gets you right under the nail or something. Man, those are painful. And you just go, ah, man, Adam and Eve, why can't you get it right? You know, and, and further than that, we think about, yeah, we're, we're hand weeding a garden, but even on a wider in industrial way as, as farmers, when you think about how much you have to contend with because the earth is cursed. You know, you would have no, no green foxtail, no quack grass, no kochia to spray. 
You know, the, the chemical reps wouldn't like that, of course, because that's how they make their living. But you wouldn't have to do it. There would be no weeds. Everything would be right where it's supposed to be. Just last summer, I was um, attempting to grow some, some grass in a dead patch in my front lawn. And initially, I was having good success. I'd done the, the groundwork. I'd put down some fresh soil. The, the weed, or I'd put the, the grass seed down, and everything was going great. I was watering it every day. I was enjoying it. And then somewhere through the summer, I don't know where it came from, but Portulaca moved in. Does anyone know Portulaca? It's, it's a swear word in my vocabulary. And, and it moved in, and, and I've been hand-weeding it ever since because I can't spray for it in town. So I'm, I'm out there with a bag, and I'm hand-weeding this out, trying to keep my grass going. And this is how it is for, for everything. Ever since the fall of man, the ground has been cursed. And it's why we have to weed it and work it, and by the sweat of our brow, day by day, year by year. God's beautiful creation is still groaning. What Paul said back then, nearly 1900-some years ago, it's still true today. The earth is still groaning. And it's longing and waiting for the day that it will be liberated from the seemingly endless cycles of upheaval, suffering, disease, and death. It longs for its restoration to the perfect, the perfect form it once, once enjoyed before the fall. But is this just a pipe dream? You know, like, is this just some pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking that, that we'll never see? Is this just something too good to hope for? Is there any hope of this at all? Well, first, Paul says that creation itself still expects this to happen. Creation itself is still expecting that it will go back to the perfection it once enjoyed. Look at verse 19. Paul says, For the creation waits in eager expectation. Eager expectation. That's a whole lot more than just wishful thinking. It eagerly expects its liberation. Somehow God's creation collectively expects that its liberation is not just a matter of if, but a matter of when. In some mysterious way, the perfection of that original creation, it's still remembered collectively within creation's DNA. It has not forgotten how God had originally made it. It's embedded within it, and it eagerly expects a return. Secondly, God hopes for creation's liberation. Let me say that again. God hopes for creation's liberation. Verses 20 to 21. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Now look at this verse closely. By whose will was the creation subjected to frustration? Whose will made this happen? Was it man's will? Did Adam will the ground to be cursed? Was this his choice? Was this his power? No, it can't be. Adam did not desire it, nor did he have the power to will it into being. So Adam was the, the cause of, of the ground being cursed, but it was not his will. And so this leaves only one other alternative. It was God who pronounced the curse on the ground as a consequence for man's rebellion against him. So it was God's will. He was the one who subject, subjected creation to frustration. 
So God willed it and God had the power to enact it. He had created it in the first place and so therefore as something underneath him, he had the ability to alter it however he saw fit. And so he cursed it. But watch this. He did so in hope that it would one day be liberated. God cursed the ground in hope that one day he would reverse the curse. Now let me ask you. Do you suppose that God gets what he hopes for? What do you think? If God did something, that he did it in hope, that one day, I I hate to do this, I don't want to do this, it wasn't even your fault, earth. It wasn't your fault, creation. It wasn't your fault, birds and creatures and, and, and sea animals. It wasn't your fault. I hate to do this, but I must. And he enacted the curse, but he did so in hope that one day, trust me, I will restore you, I will liberate you, I will return you to the perfection for which I created you. And so, if God does does something in hope, we can believe that he has the wisdom and the power and the ability to accomplish what he hopes to do. Now, thirdly, in verse 22, we read, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So here we see again, the whole creation has been groaning. But Paul says, in the pains of childbirth. Now here I find it significant that Paul uses the exact same terminology that the Lord Jesus did back in Matthew chapter 24, verses 7 and 8. And there he spoke about the signs that would proceed the end of the age. Listen to what he said. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Now, take note that Jesus said famines and earthquakes. These are some of the specific ways that creation is groaning. Famines and earthquakes, not a part of the perfect design at the beginning. And so here, Jesus includes famine and earthquakes, the earth's birth pains, with the exact phrase, all these are the beginning of birth pains. And so now we see Paul using the same analogy, saying all creation is groaning as in the the pain of labor, as in birth pains. Now, on this point, i got to put up my full disclaimer at the beginning. Leanne's not here, but she will be in the next service, and she might be watching, so I have to put this disclaimer out there. I have only been a witness to the pain of childbirth. Okay, I'm only, I'm, I'm only a witness, and uh, I thank the Lord that I will only ever be a witness of the pain of childbirth. However, as a, a first-person eyewitness of the pain of labor, I have seen firsthand that child labor increases in both frequency and intensity until the child is delivered. So it starts out at one level, and then as it gets closer to delivery, it it just keeps ratcheting up and ratcheting up in intensity, the frequency, and the pain. And yet, incredibly, my amazing wife has faced this reality willingly multiple times. Why? I've asked that question. Why would she do that? You know, it's been said many times that if men were in charge of child labor, there would only ever be one child born to a family. That's just how it would be, right? But God made women in an incredible way that they are willing to endure this more than once, multiple times, because they know, my wife knows, that on the other side of that pain is a precious gift, 
a child that she will hold in her arms and will love forever. Well, in the same way, Paul is saying that the temporary labor pains of creation, they're temporary because labor pain is always temporary. It's not forever. It it may seem like forever in those hours in that hospital bed, but it's not forever. They pass. And once they pass and the child is delivered, it's all but forgotten. Because the, the glory, the joy of holding this newborn child, it's all worth it. And I think back to when Leanne did it and, and she looks at me after, you know, just a few minutes after I had seen what she had just been through. And she looks at me and she says, I'll do it again. And I'm just, you'll do it again? Really? And yet the joy, the, the glory in a sense, overcame the suffering. Because it was worth it, the payoff. And this is what Paul is, is saying here about the, the labor that creation is going through. It's groaning. But it's going to lead to a glorious rebirth when Jesus returns and creation will be made brand new and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And so that in this way, creation groans. But it doesn't groan in futility. It groans in anticipation and in hope, because its restoration is coming. Now, secondly, it comes to us. We people groan. Verse 23, Paul continues, Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Now, just like all of creation, my body and your body is subject to decay. Now, you could try to argue with me on this if you want, but I think the evidence is self-evident, right? Our bodies are subject to decay. Now, if, if you're a child and you're on, the, you're on the younger side of 18, you'd say, well, yeah, it's, it's changing, it's getting better, I'm growing, it's getting stronger. And yeah, that's true, it is. And... Here I am, you know, I, I know you'll look at me and say, well, you're only 38. You don't even have a clue what you're talking about. But all I know is at 38, I'm no longer 18. And my body knows it. And, and I know that there's some wrinkles. And Leanne told me just the other day that she's like, Danny, one of your eyelashes is white. And I went and I looked in the mirror and sure enough, I had this white eyelash. That's odd. Where did that come from? It's because my body is subject to decay and it's only going to accelerate, I've, I've heard, on the other side of 40. So uh, that's apparently how it works. And and we all know this and we laugh about it because it's self-evident, it's true. And Paul's talking about something that's incredibly obvious to us. Our bodies age, they wear out, pain increases, wrinkles take hold, our hair turns gray and then white. The famous actress Catherine Hepburn once said shortly before her death, she said, I've discovered that my body is like a car. Something goes wrong, wears out, and I take it to the mechanic, and he replaces the part. Until one day I take it in and he says to me, we don't make parts for that model anymore. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? Our modern medicine is amazing, and, and we can sustain life in ways that previous generations could never have dreamed of. We got replacement knees and hips and all sorts of parts. We got valves and, and arteries and hearts and, to keep things pumping and going. We, we can do incredible things, but the one thing that we can't do is, is we can't keep it going forever. Inevitably, just like with Catherine Hepburn, it'll come to the point, we don't make parts for that model anymore. 
We're all experiencing this process of physical decay with each passing year. And because of this reality, Paul says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. Now, here on this point of waiting eagerly for our adoption, if you remember last week's sermon, where we closed off on this point that we have received the spirit of adoption to sonship, you might be thinking, wait a minute, isn't that already a done deal? Aren't we already adopted? What is it that we're still waiting for? Well, I'm glad you noticed this because it's a good question. So just what exactly does Paul mean here? How can we already have been adopted, but we're still waiting eagerly for our adoption? Well, here it's very helpful if we understand the cultural context of Rome. Remember, this is a letter to the Romans. And so Paul's writing within that understanding. At that time in Roman culture, there were two stages of adoption. First, there would be a private adoption ceremony where a child was taken into a home and raised as as a child of the house. This would be a private ceremony where typically, for whatever reason, someone's orphaned or, or other circumstances have required a child to be taken in and adopted into a home where it's not their biological parents. In those days, this was very common. The mortality rate was high. War was common. It was very common for children to be orphaned and therefore needed to be adopted. However, that was only the first stage of adoption because when the child had then reached the age of adulthood and they were going to be initiated into the rites of adult passage, a second public adoption ceremony would then take place where the parents would formally declare to the world, this adult child is mine. And henceforth, this child is a full heir and successor to the family name and equal inheritor of the family estate and inheritance, fully and equally as if they had been born by blood into this family. And so legally and in every sense, they are a child of the house, in name and in deed and in inheritance. And so against this cultural backdrop, what Paul is kind of painting a picture of here is that when you and I come to faith in Christ... We are privately adopted as children of God. And the sign of that adoption, he says earlier, those who have received the spirit, the first fruits of our adoption, the first stage, if you will. And this first stage is not a partial adoption because what God has set into motion, he's not going to have it thwarted. It's not going to be undone. However, that's just the first step of our adoption. Because there's going to be a second step, just like with the Romans, where there was a public ceremony In this coming ceremony, God our Father, when Christ returns and on that great glorious day, he will declare to all of the universe and the angels who are listening, this is my son, he bears my name, and henceforth he will bear that name and he receives the full inheritance of my kingdom equally with my only begotten son, the Lord Jesus. Because remember, we are co-heirs with Christ. And as staggering as that seems, back back in verse 17, Paul states it plainly. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And so now as co-heirs with Christ, what is one part of this inheritance that we have not yet received? What is the one part we have not yet received? What is it that we are waiting eagerly for? It's this. This body, it's wearing out. It's still subject to decay. And so Paul says, this part of us is eagerly awaiting the full adoption, the redemption, 
new resurrection bodies. Look at verse 23. But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, phase one of the adoption, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. It's incredible to think that this this redemption, this salvation that God has provided for us is going to be so complete that these new physical bodies, they will be immortal and they will no longer be subject to decay or aging or pain or disease or death. In other words, throw out the Advil. You'll never need Tylenol again. We won't need nurses or doctors. You'll just be able to retire and enjoy the benefits. Now, some people have this idea that our salvation is only for our soul and our spirit. Now, that is very much part of our salvation, our soul and our spirit. When when we die, and and through scriptures and, and our teaching, we understand that that soul and spirit go to be with the Lord immediately. And in, in this time in between, he provides us with an interim body. He won't leave us as disembodied spirits floating around heaven. He will clothe us with interim bodies for the duration of this time period. Paul says, for to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we know we're not just sleeping in the ground until the resurrection. There is a consciousness in the Lord's presence at the moment of our death. But the Bible also teaches very clearly that a final bodily resurrection is coming. A final bodily resurrection is coming. When on the great day of the Lord, the scripture says, The trump shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we will rise up and be caught up with the Lord and so be forever with the Lord. And so what this means is that whatever bones, whatever dust of this physical body remains in the ground, if the Lord tarries and I should be put in a coffin and and put in a hole in the ground, whatever is left of this will be resurrected by the power of God and reshaped once more. Remember, Adam was formed from the dust of the ground. So I'm staking everything on the fact that whatever dust is left of me, God can just as well take that dust of Danny Greening and reshape it and reform it into the glorious eternal body that he has promised for me, every way after the pattern of Jesus Christ. If we jump ahead to Romans 8.29, Paul explains this further. He says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined, and we're going to touch on that loaded topic next week. But now listen to this. He predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. To be conformed to the likeness of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So in other words, we are going to be made after the pattern of Jesus, conformed in every way into his likeness. Not not to look identically like him, but resurrected identically like him, in a glorious form like him. So when he could fly up into the sky, when he could walk through walls, when he could eat, when he could do all of these things, every way we will be like him. And so, as humbling as this is to say, Paul is saying it. He says that Jesus, we are co-heirs with him. He is our, our firstborn, our older brother in the faith. And so, in a similar way, once we receive our glorious resurrection bodies, You know, some of you might have noticed that me and my older brother bear somewhat of a resemblance. I don't know how many times someone has said, hey, Jamie, is that you? And no, it's Danny. Oh, sorry about that. We we bear a resemblance. Someone would say, hey, no, no one's mistaking the fact that you're brothers. 
Well, in the same way, when we receive our resurrection bodies after the pattern of Christ, someone's going to take one look at us and say, there's no mistaking it. You are Jesus' brother. You are Jesus' sister because you look just like him. Isn't that incredible? This is what our groaning bodies are waiting for. And now thirdly, the spirit groans. The spirit groans. Romans 8, 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Now, first we see here that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Greek phrase carries the idea that in our human weakness, we are struggling to carry a heavy load. Has anyone ever carried a heavy load and just kind of groaned? You know, you're not, a groan expresses something that words cannot, right? I know one time, um, back in my previous house in Laurier, they left us a, uh, a piano in the basement. Has anyone ever inherited a piano? Has anyone ever tried to help carry that piano up the stairs? Well, you know, my, my brothers, you know, of course, graciously helped me, willingly. And, uh, you know, and so I chopped that thing into firewood, but that big cast iron thing back there, like, oh. And so when, when you're trying to get that up there, there was times where it, you're not going to say, boy, this is heavy. I wonder how much it weighs. You're just, ah, right? You're groaning. And you're trying to hopefully not get a hernia or pull something in your back, right? You're groaning because the burden is heavy. And so in this way, Paul's painting this picture that the Spirit comes alongside us and as we're groaning, he puts his shoulder beside ours and he kind of groans with us. Not that the Spirit himself groans because he's unable to do something. It's because he's sharing with us. He's bearing the burden for us. And so we see the Spirit intercedes for us with groans that are too deep for words. Now an intercessor is a person who pleads someone else's case. So in this sense, the Spirit comes alongside us and says, look, this burden's too heavy for Danny, Lord. He can't bear it. And so he pleads my case with the Father. And according to his will, as he intercedes in prayer on my behalf with precise requests, the Lord says, you know what? Here, let's lighten that load. He might not always take it entirely away, but he lightens it just enough that we can bear up under it, doesn't he? So often he says, here's, here's the load limit. I know what it is, and I'll take the rest. Keep your shoulder, keep your shoulder there, but I got the rest. And it's just enough that we can keep going and we won't be crushed because the Spirit is interceding, groaning on our behalf. A powerful example of this type of divine intercession is when Jesus told Peter that Satan had asked for permission to sift him like wheat. But then Jesus said to Peter, But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again... Strengthen your brothers. Now, Peter didn't know any of this. So he couldn't even have known to pray for this in advance if he had tried. In fact, later on that same evening, we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says to Peter, watch and pray. Watch and pray with me just for a short while. Watch and pray with me. But his flesh was weak. And so he falls asleep and Jesus keeps saying, watch and pray, and he has to rebuke them. But their, their flesh is too weak. He couldn't even pray for a few hours with Jesus. And so we see, however, as Jesus had foretold, Peter, of course, in his flesh, he was too weak. 
He denies him three times. But just as Jesus had prayed for him, yes, Satan came along and sifted him like wheat. Peter returned. Unlike Judas, who went away in despair and and ended himself, Peter did not do that. Peter returned to the Lord. He was restored. And we know how that story plays out, the threefold declarations. Peter, do you love me? Peter was restored. And yes, he did go on to strengthen his brothers because he became the leader of the church for decades to come. And this gives us assurance that while we yet groan in our sufferings during this present age, in our sanctification we groan. The Spirit who is in us groans alongside for us to the Father. And then he's strengthening us and sustaining us to not give up, do not lose hope, do not give in to despair. Whatever your burden is, I'm shouldering it with you and it will always be just enough to keep you going. So now to recap, the three groans, we have seen creation groans, we groan, and the spirit groans. And to each one of these groans, the Lord has a real provision to sustain us and an incredible promise that future glory is coming. It's yet to be revealed and to keep us looking forward in hope that it is ours through faith right now today. Romans 8, 24 and 25, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We wait for it patiently. This talks about endurance. We wait for it patiently. It's ours through faith, but it's not yet. And so we wait for it patiently. This takes us back to Romans 4, where earlier Paul had said, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. As G.K. Chesterton once wrote, hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or a platitude. It is only when everything seems hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. So yes, today our future glorification is still just a hope. And the skeptics and the deniers and the atheists will say it's just pie in the sky. But we can say, no, no, it's not just wishful thinking. It's not just pie in the sky. By faith, I know it's mine. And so in hope like Abraham, against all hope, we believe. And what the Lord said in Isaiah 49, 23 remains true. Those who hope in the Lord will never be disappointed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of very few German pastors who was willing to personally and publicly stand against Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime in the 1930s in Germany as they persecuted the Jews. Along with that came ever-increasing pressure and threats to stop. But Bonhoeffer did not fear death. In a sermon that he preached while he was pastoring a church in London in 1933, Bonhoeffer said, No one has yet believed in God and the kingdom of God. No one has yet heard about the realm of the resurrected and not been homesick from that very hour, waiting and looking forward to being released from bodily existence. Whether we are young or old, it makes no difference. What is 20 or 30 years in the sight of God? And which of us knows right now how near she may already be to the goal? That life only really begins when it ends here on earth. That all that is here is only the prologue before the curtain goes up. That is for young and old alike to think about. Why are we so afraid when we think about death? 
Death is only dreadful for those who live in dread and fear of it. Death is not wild and terrible if only we can be still and hold fast to God's word. Death is not bitter if we have not become bitter ourselves. Death is grace, the greatest gift of grace that God gives to people who believe in him. Death is mild. Death is sweet and gentle. It beckons to us with heavenly power if only we realize that it is the gateway to our homeland, the tabernacle of joy, the everlasting kingdom of peace. Now those are powerful words for someone when they're spoken in the safety of of a safe and secure environment. But how much more weight do those words carry when we consider that Bonhoeffer, after having been imprisoned by the Nazis, only two weeks before the end of the war in 1945, was sentenced to be executed by a personal order from Adolf Hitler himself. And in that moment of truth, rather than fear the hangman's noose, the final entry in Bonhoeffer's journal reads simply, This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. So in closing, let me ask, in your present sufferings, whatever those might be or might yet come, where have you placed your hope? As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 43, verse 5, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. For truly, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will yet be revealed in us. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we ponder what is yet to come, those words we heard earlier are so true, the best is yet to come. For in faith, you have given us the first fruits of this adoption by the Spirit, and yet our bodies long for the full adoption, the resurrection where we will be with you in glory, restored in the perfect image and likeness of Christ in your presence forever. And further, we know that this earth will be restored and a new earth is coming and that, Lord, all things will be set right. And so, Father, we thank you for this great and glorious hope you've given us. Help us today to be encouraged by it as we lay hold of it through faith and as we wait for it patiently, as we continue to walk out day by day this sanctification that you have called us to. And so we thank you, Lord, that you are the one doing this. And you who have done all of this in hope that it would be fulfilled, we know you are able to fulfill what you have set out to do. And so we thank you for this promise. Encourage us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.